Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. People, this is Don't Interrupt Me, por favor. Estamos empezando el programa de radio, programa de radio bilingüe, que va del español al inglés y del inglés al español, porque hay cosas que conviene decirlas en un idioma y hay cosas que uno no sabe decirlas más que en otro idioma. So we use the English when we need the English, and we have to tell the stories about how we feel in our world in English. And we go back to Spanish and use the Spanish when we have to give you some emotions that uh, we don't know how to explain in a different language. Hoy tenemos con nosotros a una invitada eh, muy especial porque mm, el idioma que utiliza es todavía mucho más universal que el lenguaje de la voz. Es la música. Se llama Cristina Pato. ¿Cómo estás? Hola. A Cristina Pato, y es eh, mujer y gaiteira. Eh, eso de tocar la gaita eh, eh, o sea, es una cosa un poco eh, inhabitual, digamos, ¿no? Bueno, primero voy a empezar a, a, a describir lo que es la gaita, porque en el mundo hispanohablante la palabra gaita tiene significados muy diferentes, depende del país en el que estés. En, en el caso de España, la gaita, la gaita es el bagpipe, o sea, es un instrumento de origen pastoril, que lo reconoceréis porque tiene una bolsa de aire y unos pipes. La palabra en inglés es para mí una de las más prácticas que hay en todos los lenguajes porque literalmente una gaita es a bag and a set of pipes. Y, y la gaita es un instrumento de origen pastoril. Eso quiere decir que allá donde hubo un pastor hay un tipo de gaita. Y, um, nació probablemente en el Mediterráneo y se fue eh, extendiendo a muchos otros países. Y es curioso porque en este país en concreto, por las raíces, la primera gaita que se les viene a la cabeza es la gaita escocesa o la gaita irlandesa. Y en el caso de España, la primera gaita que se nos viene a la cabeza es la gaita gallega. Y en el caso de Europa, pues quizás quizá sea la gaita búlgara. Y posiblemente en Estados Unidos, puesto que la gente de España lleva aquí desde el principio de... 1500, eh, <risa> posiblemente, aunque se nos haya borrado la memoria, la gaita gallega fuera una de las primeras gaitas en, en llegar a esta parte del continente. Para aclararnos que existe una gaita en Galicia, pero que aquí la gente no sabe ni que existe, ¿no? Bueno, aquí, a ver, es como en todas las partes del mundo. Es como si le preguntas a un gallego dónde está Arizona, pues lo mismo pasa cuando le preguntas a un americano dónde está Galicia, ¿no? Lo más bonito de tocar la gaita gallega es que tienes que colocar a Galicia en el mapa antes de ponerte a tocar el instrumento, ¿no? Y eso te obliga a tener que que pues dar una pequeña lección de geografía o una pequeña lección de historia y después ayudarnos a ver que realmente las gaitas no pertenecen a una cultura concreta, pertenecen a todas. ¿no? Y a través de la historia de las gaitas pues puedes contar muchas otras historias sobre migraciones. Bueno, y ahora, aparte de ser gaitera eh, de Galicia en Estados Unidos, claro, eres mujer. ¿Es muy normal lo del gaitera? Porque normalmente se ven a los señores con faldas, pero a los señores. ¿no? Aquí son, sí, ¿no? Que son, los, que son los que tocan la gaita. 
Con las gaitas pasó un poco como con todas las profesiones, ¿no? Si las había eran invisibles, realmente los gaiteiros gallegos profesionales fueron siempre hombres y aunque sí que hay en la historia mujeres que se dedicaron al mundo de la gaita, profesionalmente pues no hubo, no hubo alguien oficial hasta que nació el boom de los 90, que fue cuando nos conocimos y, y de repente pues salieron los hombres gaiteiros y las mujeres gaiteiras. Nunca fue una profesión de mujeres pues porque era una profesión itinerante, porque significaba otras muchas cosas que, que quizá pues a la mujer no se le permitía en aquel momento. Pero yo soy la pequeña de cuatro hermanas, mis hermanas tocaban la gaita antes que yo y vengo de una ciudad que es Urense, que tiene 100.000 habitantes, de los cuales 10.000 estaban eh, involucrados de alguna manera en la escuela de gaitas, en mi generación. Yo nací justo después de Franco, de que Franco muriera, entonces fue como una... Una, un renacer de la cultura gallega, de la lengua gallega, de la música gallega y yo pertenezco a esa generación de, del romanticismo de finales del siglo XX. We have a couple of phone calls. We have two people trying to talk to Cristina in the show. Uh, the first call, I think, comes from Brooklyn. Uh, his name is Nick Leiber, I think. Nick Leiber, hello. Hello, Guillermo Fesser. Uh, we're taking calls from Brooklyn today. Uh, uh, here's Cristina Pato. Go ahead with your question. Cristina Pato. I'm so happy to speak with you. My name is Nick Leiber, and I just heard you on the radio. You were talking about 100,000 people in your home city back in Galicia, and 10,000 of them um, learn how to play the gaita, learn how to play the Galician bagpipe, or have something to do with bagpipe learning and education. That's, that's how you grew up? And that's how I grew up. Like, you had two choices in Galicia. Either you play soccer or you play bagpipes. And I was very lazy to play soccer, so I went directly into bagpipes. And, well, you have to understand that, you know, in Galicia, like in Catalonia, like in the Basque Country, we have our own language, we have our own culture, our own music. So uh, being able to re-celebrate that diversity and that different way of understanding life was something that my generation took its really uh, personally and it was kind of like a responsibility for all of us to be able to carry the name of Galicia, the language of Galicia and the music of Galicia through the instrument. So I was part of that generation. Historically speaking, uh, Franco dies in the mid-70s. Franco was the dictator of Spain during the 20th century. And, and when I was born, this whole rebirth of Galician pride and Galician love for Galician culture made that every little village in Galicia had a school of bagpipers. And then there was one very big school in the center of Ourense, which is the, the town that I come from, that will uh, connect all these small schools around the city city and all of them connected had 10,000 bagpipers trying to learn bagpipes and the funny thing and I, I talk a lot so Guillermo you, you can just okay we have another it. call uh, somebody's calling from uh, from Tucson Arizona but hold on a second finish okay. go ahead you have 30 seconds more <laughs> Good. the funny thing and that's that's where I place myself in life the school of bagpipers and the conservatory for classical music in Ourense were two buildings next to each other and I could count with the fingers of my hand how many people would go to both places there was like a horrible socio-economical wall between the world of classical music and the work or of folkloric music in Galicia. So living in between is kind of the way I, I learn how to live life as a musician. So Lisa Button is calling from uh, Tucson, Arizona. Lisa, uh, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing very well, thank you. We're happy to have uh, you in our show and go ahead and Cristina Pato is here <laughs> and any question that uh, you think you consider is, is good, go ahead with it. 
Yeah, so Christina, you've been doing this for 20 years, I understand. Is that right? Uh, yes. I mean, professionally speaking, yes. I released, I released my first solo album 20 years ago this month, February 19. And you were talking about um, the Gallego, you know, Galicia and the pride in uh, Galicia of, of the heritage there. And I noticed that you, you played recently in Ellis Island, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I also know, um, you know, the bagpipes for you are, are a part of identity. They're not just an instrument that you play. So what, what is it about um, migration, Ellis Island, identity? Do those three things kind of come together for you at all? If you think about Galician people in the context of Spain's history, we can define migration through the movements Galician people made uh, for the last two centuries. I mean, going to Cuba, going to Venezuela and Argentina, that was the typical route for Galician immigrants. In fact, my parents, both of them uh, from Ourense, they met in Caracas, Venezuela, where my father was the accordion player for the Galician Center and my mother was there dancing one night. They met, they married, they had my oldest sister there, and then they came back to Galicia. And, and you know, uh, the president of Galicia kind of gets elected in Argentina. And if you think about the way Argentinians, for example, refers, refer to Spaniards, they're going to say we are all Gallegos. For a while, everybody coming from the Iberian Peninsula was pretty much a Galician because we were famous for being good hard workers. And that's how my history of migration is connected to my way of understanding music because the way the Galician bagpipe was not only supported but also uh, sustained through history was in all these Galician centers all around the world. The Galician anthem actually was premiered in Havana, Cuba, and the first Galician grammar was also published there before it was published in Galicia. So history of migration and the history of Galicia are pretty much connected, and the bagpipe is the common thread for both of them. Me gustaría saber, eh, Cristina, eh, 38 años... En la, vieja, ¿eh? ¿no? en, la, en la flor de la vida <risa> eh, Y sin embargo eh, Son muchos 38 años para una mujer En un escenario eh, En la carrera que tú estás ¿Cómo, ¿Cómo es eso de ser mujer y músico en el siglo XXI? En el que parece que hemos roto todas las barreras ¿Todavía hay un techo de cristal ahí? ¿Todavía para estar en el escenario Hay que tener la eterna juventud? No sé si, si la barrera adecuada sería el techo de cristal, porque en, en el mundo del liderazgo y la música, la mujer siempre ha estado ahí, ¿no? de mejor o peor manera, pero todas las que somos líderes de un, de un grupo o de una formación, eh, rompimos ese techo de cristal en el momento que nos convertimos en, en la persona que está liderando algo. Eh, o sea, para mí lo, lo más fascinante, sobre todo si, si te dedicas a, al performing arts, ¿no? O sea, en el mundo de la música tú puedes ser una buena compositora que además interpreta esas canciones y que además es una gran intérprete de esas canciones, ¿no? Un gran performer. Eh, si, si tú no te dedicas a las tres cosas, si no eres compositora e intérprete y encima performer, es muy difícil envejecer, seas hombre o seas mujer, pero siendo mujer creo que es todavía más difícil. Es un, una industria muy cruel en la que... Eh, ya no es tanto una cuestión física, sino también una cuestión de energía sobre un escenario. Y la gaita es un instrumento que es real, realmente físico, ¿no? Y, although it's controversial for me to even think about it, I don't think we age the same way uh, that men age on a stage, especially if you all consider yourself a performer. As a composer, I could be writing for the rest of my life, but I don't 
think I could see myself in 25 years going on a stage, playing my Galician bagpipe and dancing all around the stage. I think we should hear some gaita. Let's go uh, listen to the bagpipe from uh, Cristina Pato. Uh, and then we can talk about what's so great about that instrument that is so loud. <laughs> Christina, wow. You know, my, my husband and my son are both drummers, and when they play, they usually go down in the basement so the neighbors don't uh, go crazy with saying, hey, what's going on over there? Um, when you play, tell us a little bit about uh, where, where do you practice? Like, what's it like? Uh, you know, tell us about your actual bagpipe itself. You know... It's funny because when you become an immigrant to this country, then you have to think about the things that you took for granted in the part of your world and and then try to start all over again here. So for me, it was fascinating because in Galicia, you could play bagpipes anywhere, practice anywhere, and nobody was going to complain. And sometimes I live in New York City, right? I live in Manhattan. And in Manhattan, I go to practice to like rehearsal studies, uh, studios that you rent for hours. And I have to avoid like music, classical music rehearsal studios because I'm too loud for, for them. And... And then I have to, I, I started to go to like rock and roll music studios to be able to practice. The wonderful thing about the bagpipe today is you have actually like electronic versions of the instrument that you can use to do fingering, to learn difficult pieces. But the beauty of the instrument is actually the live sound. And that's also the challenge of the instrument because I am like 120 dBs. Uh, loud, which is pretty much illegal <laughs> to be that loud in any home anywhere in the world. So you have to start apologizing, then looking for the right place uh, for rehearsal. And to me, the most fascinating thing is to be able to create the space to not only to to perform, but also to hear whatever is happening on the other 
parts of the room. Like if you're playing with a drummer, chances are that the drummer is not going to be able to hear me, but I am also probably not able to hear him really well. And how do you start a conversation when the two of you are really loud and talking all the time? And that's that's the beauty of playing bagpipes. Pero sobre todo, eh, no solamente compitiendo con un drummer, con un batería que tiene la misma energía que tú y, y puedes pelear de igual a igual, ¿no? O sea, eh, parte de tu carrera, gran parte de tu carrera en Estados Unidos es con Yo-Yo Ma, es con el Silk Road, ¿se llama en Sambo? ¿Cómo uh -huh. se llama el proyecto? Silk Road, sí. Silk Road, en eh, donde estáis gente con instrumentos cada uno más raro que el anterior, ¿no? <risa> sí. Eh, eh, ¿Podemos describir alguno de los instrumentos que están sí, ahí? Sí, mira, eh, Silk Road hay, bueno, está basado en la ruta de la seda, ¿no? Esa es la metáfora de la organización, de unir el oeste con el este a través de la música. Entonces tienes desde la pipa, China, que es un es como el origen de todos los instrumentos de cuerda eh, pulsada. Un laúd antiguo, como un laúd. guitarrón enorme. Sí, uh -huh. es, eh, como un laúd, como una guitarra también. Se toca de manera vertical, es un instrumento muy elegante y un instrumento que tiene eh, miles de años de historia. ¿no? El sakuhachi japonés, por ejemplo. ¿Sakuhachi no es para beber? <risa> el, casi, es, es, es el sake, ¿no? Ah, sí, sí. ¿Y el sakuhachi qué es entonces? El sakuhachi es una flauta de bambú eh, gigante que tiene cuatro agujeros o cinco creo y um, es de origen japonés aunque también está presente en la cultura china y es un instrumento de meditación es un instrumento que perteneció a, a los monjes de aquella zona y que pues si piensas en música oriental ahora mismo y te viene a la cabeza el sonido de una flauta probablemente sea el sakuhachi lo que estás oyendo, es como este sonido de viento y de bambú, de notas okay. largas okay. Sobre todo para la gente que haga pues, meditación okay. trascendental. Hay un sirio ahí también, ¿no? El... Hay un sirio, pero lo curioso del sirio es que no es un especialista en música árabe, sino he happens to be a Syrian playing classical music. Okay. Y eso es lo que lo hizo todavía más relevante, Kinan Asme. Bueno, los, los, todos los músicos dentro de Silk Road... A ver, voy a poneros en contexto, ¿vale? vale, vale. Silk Road es una organización que creó el violonchelista eh, de origen chino, nacido en Francia, criado en Estados Unidos, que es Yo-Yo Ma. El, violon, el violonchelista confuso Yo-Yo Ma. Ese mismo. Pues en, en, cuando él tenía 40 años y llevaba pues ya más... Mucho, mucho tiempo confundido. Mucho tiempo confundido. Dijo, voy a confundir yo a los demás porque, joder, ¿por qué voy a estar yo solo confundido en el mundo pudiendo estar todos igual? Pues más o menos. Y entendió que su talento era una responsabilidad y que tenía que hacer algo útil con respecto a eso y, y montó esta organización que se llama Soul Road con la idea de, de bueno, con una, una pregunta muy sencilla en la cabeza, ¿qué pasa cuando se what happens when strangers meet? Okay. And what kind of music do strangers play when they get together? Quería utilizar la ruta de la seda como metáfora porque realmente la ruta de la seda fue la mayor plataforma de intercambio cultural durante siglos, ¿no? Y, why is called the edge? What is, uh, uh, going back to the concept that you said, why when Different the edge effect, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a, that's that's a concept he yeah, used. Yeah, well, don't don't interrupt her, por favor. Let her. Yeah, explain. you look. Right. As, I mean, you, you sound like a Spanish edge, guy. <laughs> the end. We're here on "Don't Interrupt Me, Por Favor," and Guillermo is interrupting Cristina Pato. Well, you know, he's from Spain, and we we really like to interrupt people when we're. I mean, it's like the way we talk to each other is just constantly interrupting each other. So it's it's not like we take it as a bad thing, but. Uh, Nick, why don't you uh, do the question? Just, just ask no, her. I ask, ask, hear, no, no. I, I want to hear her answer. No, I but that, that's what I mean. But ask her the same thing. And then the, <laughs> so, so that part you're in the show too. Okay. Well, then, I don't even remember the question anymore. Wait, wait, Nick. Don't interrupt Nick, por favor. <laughs> Where 
where I was. Where was I, Nick? Do you remember? You were, you were telling us about about Yo-Yo Ma's vision for getting people together who don't normally get together, which made Guillermo say, well, what is this that happens at the edge of these two forests? And we're at a, in a Syrian forest and we're in a Spanish forest. What's happening in these forests with the, these different languages and these confused people? You were trying to make us less confused. Good. So, so <laughs> that's funny. Thank you for clarifying. Um, the edge effect actually is a concept that comes from ecology. And Jojo has been using that concept as a way to explain the organization, not the ensemble, but the whole organization. In ecology, apparently, the point where two ecosystems meet, such as the forest and the savanna, uh, that point is where the most new life forms are created. And uh, one day I heard him using that to explain Silk Road as an organization. And long story short, Silk Road is a collective of artists from all around the world, from China, Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, Spain, the U.S., Israel, you name it. But it's a collective. So we work in, in a very unique way. All of us are independent artists that have our own careers. We bring what we have in our own careers to the collective. We share it and then we take it back to our lives. So we create that kind of edge effect. But also Silk Road is in the center of academic settings. So for the last, I believe it's nine years, uh, our home is at Harvard University, where we started to launch different programs with the Harvard Business School and with the Harvard Graduate School of Education, thinking about what is the role of the arts in academia and trying to uh, bring the arts into having a seat at the table and be able to bring up all these very difficult conversations that if, as you were saying at the beginning of this program, like there are some things that musically you can express bigger emotions that you can do with words. The same way we feel better sometimes when we speak Spanish or English and, and the arts can actually help us to tell, uh, just express emotions that are impossible to express explain otherwise uh, I love that go ahead Lisa interrupt me before oh sure no I love that bagpipes have a seat at Harvard's table (laughs) well that's a yeah that that is yeah that might be a a different way of understanding it but um, you know every academic institution is a very unique place in which um, and I'm talking in general right now, but the way usually the sciences and the humanities are isolated from each other is not so different from the way we human beings uh, tend to see other countries or other cultures. And as musicians, we practice that way of connecting with each other on a regular basis. We have to be collaborative. That's the only way you can be a good musician. You have to be flexible. That's the only way you can be a good musician. And especially you have to be an amazing listener to be able to be a good musician. And imagine if you can take those values into academia or into the 21st century society in which even if you play the most uncomfortable instrument in the room, which is the Galician bagpipe in terms of listening, um, you have to create an environment in which that conversation can actually happen. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Eh, entonces, eh, déjame que eh, te pregunte algo. Yo-Yo Ma parece que lo que está haciendo es poner delante de una audiencia que normalmente no esperaba eso, instrumentos extraños, personas extrañas, para iniciar una conversación que va más allá de la música, ¿vale? Con lo cual, gracias yo Ma desde aquí, porque todo lo que sea abrirnos ventanas, abrirnos puertas a, a nuevas experiencias, bienvenido sea y cuanto más sepamos cada uno que somos igual de raros que los otros, mejor nos tratamos entre, entre nosotros mismos. Pero ahora la pregunta, y a ti te ponen un escenario yo Ma con un backpipe, con una, uh, con una gaita que suena muy fuerte, y él toca un chelo que suena flojito. Y luego el de la flauta esta de viento japonés también es muy sutil y tal. ¿Qué has aprendido tú, Cristina Pato? ¿Qué has aprendido tú eh, que te has tenido que meter chillando, gritando en un escenario donde había otra gente que hablaba muy bajito? Porque eso es la vida. Eso es una cena donde hay uno que cuenta chistes y interrumpe y uno que está en la esquina que no ha dicho nada en toda la noche. Es, es una mezcla de factores. Porque también cuando estás acostumbrada a ser siempre la que, pues como decía... Lisa. Lisa, al principio, ¿no? Que mi, mi instrumento es el instrumento que trae la fiesta. Y es verdad, es, es, esa, es mi, esa es mi tradición. Y simplemente aprender a, a no tener que traer la fiesta, simplemente permitirme el poder estar en la esquina del escenario y salir solo a tocar en un momentito, porque es eso lo que se necesita en ese momento, es un privilegio que no me había permitido hacer antes. Son varios factores, ¿no? Por una parte... Eh, esto es algo que se puede hacer hoy porque la tecnología forma parte de nuestras vidas. Hace pues, 50 años poner un chelo con una gaita y con un sakuhachi probablemente sería muchísimo más difícil de lo que es ahora. Es algo también que se puede hacer hoy pues porque eh, Yoyoma y Silk Road nos dio la plataforma para poder experimentar. Porque de manera natural ni la gaita ni el sakuhachi van a poder trabajar juntos, a menos, de que, a menos que nos hayas dado horas y horas para poder reunirnos y un espacio para poder crear, crear juntos. ¿no? Y, y después la, la belleza de la, de la diferencia. ¿no? O sea, el, el mundo de las diferencias, el mundo de, de, de las culturas diferentes, ¿no? cómo poder encontrar eh, eh, algo eh, significativo. <risa> dentro de, de, de pues no escuchar al otro ¿no? y buscar otras maneras de poder escuchar al otro ¿no? de a nivel visual, a nivel físico y cuando estoy tocando por ejemplo con mi amigo Kou Mezaki que es el sakuhachi japonés pues eh, realmente tengo que estar mirándole todo el rato es la única manera que tengo de poder entenderle la comunicación al final es una comunicación ah, visual sí, sí. You started when you were 18. Uh, you were probably surprised that uh, everything happened really fast, right? Yeah. Uh, how did how actually how did it happen? How, uh, how, well, 
Go ahead. I mean, it, it's a mixture of things because the reason I play with Jojo and Silroth is because I'm classically trained as a musician, and that you're a piano player, right? I'm a piano player, and that's the reason I came to the U.S. I came to U.S. to get my PhD as a musical, I mean, a Doctor of Musical Arts. That's my degree, and I came as a collaborative pianist, which is a chamber musician, and. Uh, um, you know, when Nick, when we were talking at the beginning of the conversation and I was talking about this connection between classical music and, and folkloric music in Galicia, in my generation, if you wanted a degree in music, uh, you will have to go through Western classical music. You could not get a like a bachelor of music uh, in bagpipes. You have to get it through the typical Western classical m okay. conservatory things. Today is different. I mean, like uh, I think it was in 1996 or something like that, in which the bagpipes was put in the conservatory. So now you can get like a special degree in world music with the bagpipe as your major instrument. So my mother, who was who is from the rural areas of Galicia and didn't have uh, an access to education because she was born in what we call the hunger generation in Spain. Um, she understood that for her four daughters, daughters to have uh, an independent, meaningful life, we had to be the best uh, in academics. So if we wanted to be musicians, that was okay with her as long as we went through the conservatory musical training. So I got my degree in Barcelona, in the Conservatorio Liceu de Barcelona. Then I moved to the U.S. Actually, I did my master's at the Pompeu Fabra University in Barcelona too. And then I moved to the U.S. to do my doctorate. And I had another life as a bagpiper, which is the life where I met you 20 years ago. Guillermo, and uh, and that was like a hobby for me. I was a bagpiper, but I would never thought that I could make a living out of it. Even today, I mean, when I say I'm a professional bagpiper in this country, the first thing I get is a laugh, and then I have to like explain the whole thing. Back in the day in Spain, it was the same thing. So I released an album that I did with my friends, my now husband, my sister, everybody around me, and the album sold like 20,000 copies in the first couple wow. of months, and my life changed radically. And you were 18. And I was 18. So I had to pause my dreams of coming to the U.S. at that time. I had to fulfill all, all my obligations with the record label. And then when I was uh, 23 years old, I moved to this country to do my doctorate. And that's when my life changed because up until that moment, my life as a classical pianist and my life as a bagpiper had nothing to do with each other. The audiences were differently. The venues were differently. Uh, as a bagpiper, you go to play where the people are. As a pianist, you you know you go on a stage and people come to see you. So it's just it's a completely different way of understanding music. And and then I was here at Rutgers University doing my doctorate, and a composer comes to give a master class. I was the pianist for that master class, and he happened to be writing a piece for Yo-Yo Ma and the Silver Ensemble. And I met them, and you know, a few weeks after that, I was performing with them in Carnegie Hall, and, wow. and my life changed. And then right. all of a sudden, I went from doing like 150 shows a year as a like whatever pop rock crazy bagpiper to coming to this country and understanding, you know, answering to the, your question before that there are way more things that connect the two worlds than I thought, and I was living in the two worlds, and I was not able to connect the dots until I met this amazing guy that helped me to see that you are the only one that are putting those limits in between the two. Wow. So and your worlds collided in a great way. Yeah. 
and now and now you're now you're teaching and you're trying to to bring these colliding worlds to students and confuse them uh, or to <laughs> make them to make them understand that this interdisciplinary place is where the magic happens. Take me into your take us into your class at Santa Barbara. Your this pilot class. What's it, what what happens there? So. I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of context for that class. And nobody be, needs a bagpiper in the world, right? Like nobody thinks about hiring a bagpiper for an academical setting or for like even a radio program. So, but I, I always thought that the values that I learned to be, I mean, as a bagpiper, you have the, you have to develop a thousand ways of making yourself needed in every possible in my environment. And also, all the things that you practice as a bagpiper are transferable to any other discipline. So I tried to take that out and then create something that could be transferable to academia. And memory and interdisciplinary exploration is the name of one of the classes I designed for the University of California in Santa Barbara, along with a neuroscientist Ken Kosick and artist Kim Yasuda. And we were talking about exploring the concept of memory loss from many different disciplines, like from the anthropological perspective of, for example, what is happening in the world today. Like that's a wonderful example or a horrible example of cultural memory loss, but also through the role of music uh, in the life of people with uh, suffering from dementia or any other um, cognitive disease and and how do artists actually render those things as an artist and and then we began working together and out of that collaborative work we thought that maybe creating a class in which students from different disciplines students from the sciences and the humanities will have to work together the same way we had to work together and you know putting a neuroscientist and a public artist and a bagpiper together is as crazy as putting as a cello player, a bagpiper and a sakuhachi together, or as crazy as putting people from three different uh, cultural identities working together. You need patience, you need time, you need uh, uh, listening skills, you need many values that as musicians you practice all the, all the time. And so we created this class. The class was a success, and and we are exploring now the same concept, the concept of memory loss, but through migration and cultural memory loss through human migration, which takes me back to you know Guillermo's uh, recent projects about what is the role of Spanish culture in this country, right? And that's something even I, coming from Spain, had no idea that we were so 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 present in the regions of this country, the U.S. And that's. That's another example of cultural memory loss, right? Of course, of course. Um, me gustaría que hablaras, has hablado de ser mujer, de estar en el escenario como mujer. Eh, mm, me gustaría que hablaras de otro programa, de otro proyecto tuyo que tiene que ver con el de memory loss. Eh, has mencionado uno, pero que es eh, sobre la invisibilidad de las mujeres, ¿no? Eh, mm. Te preocupa, ¿no? Que, que, que las mujeres tengan visibilidad. Eh. Es una mezcla de factores, pero yo vengo de una familia de mujeres. Mi madre viuda y somos cuatro hijas. Y en, en mi mundo las mujeres no, no solo no eran invisibles, sino, sino que eran las que mandaban, las que trabajaban, las que traían el dinero a casa. O sea, la mujer era mi realidad, ¿no? Y cuando sales de tu pequeño minifundio, de repente te das cuenta de que esa no es la realidad de todas las mujeres del mundo, ¿no? Y, y empecé... 
a explorar eso desde varios puntos de vista, ¿no? Porque en el fondo en mi carrera como músico profesional, pues se hizo gracias al hecho de ser mujer y ser gaitera, ¿no? Y es un peso que que durante una temporada no quería cargar con él. O sea, para mí era como, bueno, mis hermanas también tocan, o sea, ¿qué hay de nuevo en eso, no? Y, y de repente, pues en los últimos 10 años, empiezo a encontrarme chicas, ¿no? Que ahora tienen 25 años y que me conocieron a mí cuando tenían 5 o 6 y que, y que empezaron a tocar la gaita por mi culpa, ¿no? Y, y de repente me di cuenta del impacto que podía tener simplemente tener una referencia femenina en algo que nunca había habido una referencia femenina, ¿no? Y ahí fue cuando empecé a pensar en cuántas otras cosas hay que son invisibles para mí, que está también muy relacionado con el proyecto del de, de increíble hispanista y profesor de la Universidad de Nueva York, James Fernández, que hace 10 años también empezó con su proyecto de Invisible Immigrants, y, eh, hablando de la, de la inmigración española a Estados Unidos de finales del siglo XIX y primeros del siglo XX, alrededor de la guerra civil en española, y cómo los españoles realmente se convirtieron en inmigrantes invisibles porque estaban eran invisibles para aquí, por, por la lengua, pero también fueron invisibles para España porque fueron borrados de la historia de España. ¿no? Y, y, y cuando empecé a leer sobre su proyecto pensé, ostras, pero esto es algo que a lo mejor es invisible para ti, pero en Galicia somos muy conscientes de cuántos gallegos se vinieron para Estados Unidos y ya no volvieron porque no podían. ¿no? Y, y ahí fue cuando empecé a pensar en la idea de, ostras, si empiezo a encargar obras a mujeres compositoras sobre lo que ellas consideren invisible en, tu, en su entorno, pues a lo mejor consigo aprender yo más de, del millón y millones de cosas que probablemente no sea consciente ni siquiera de que existen a mi alrededor, ¿no? Y, y de ahí viene, ese es el próximo proyecto. Ah, well, and what about little girls, um, you know, in terms of how important is music education for children, uh, girls or boys? One of the so one of the projects that I work with most of the time. So for Silk Road, I also serve as learning advisor. So I help the organization to develop like curriculums and education programs for the different institutions that we work with. But one of the programs that we are very proud and we've been doing for the last, I believe, nine years eight years, it's called the Arts and Passion Driven Learning. And this is held at uh, Harvard University in the summers, but is is with the idea of um, the arts are actually the key that make you uh, to go from having to do something to wanting to do something. And bringing the arts into the school is like bringing back the passion to the school. And I mean... I I cannot understand my life without music or without literature. Like music has saved my life so many times, and in the last nine years, I I I was incredibly lucky to go and um, work in the most unique environments of the U.S. Um, uh, public schools and and see firsthand what is actually the role of the arts in the schools, especially sixth graders, which is usually the the um, how do you say that? Bueno. Sixth graders es el momento en el que los niños deciden seguir estudiando o no seguir estudiando. Había una estadística con respecto a eso. Es el momento en el que hay más abandono. De, sí, hay más abandono escolar. Escuela, ¿no? es cuando sí. ya le empiezan a hacer los primeros pelos, podemos decirlo. ¿no? Sí, y o ya, que sí. los problemas se, se convierten en problemas graves. ¿no? Y, y hay, hubo un programa muy bonito que empezó la administración Obama en el año 2011 
eh, que se llamaba Turnaround Arts eh, y Turnaround Arts escogió las seis escuelas uh, the lowest performing uh, schools in the US public schools in the US and they wanted to prove what would happen if you inserted the arts into those schools and maybe there was a turnaround And, y estuve trabajando para ese proyecto durante unos años y fue algo realmente fascinante, ¿no? Ver cómo en la mayoría de ellas el, el cambio fue casi radical, ¿no? De, de violencia, de abandono escolar, a, a estar los niños involucrados en las funciones de fin de curso, de querer tocar los instrumentos. Es algo muy bonito, la verdad. Hablando de pasión, speaking of passion... Uh... We have to talk about Mile Davis. We have to see somehow how do you get involved with jazz, with that beautiful music. ¿Tú te acuerdas de un disco de Miles Davis, Dick Evans, que se llamaba Sketches of Spain? Eh, recuerdo el título, sí. No te, no te sabría tararear a ninguna, pero recuerdo el título. <laughs> Sketches of Spain. Impresionante el, yeah. el disco. A ver, cuéntale aquí al españolito este, Nick, qué significó Sketches of Spain en la música americana. It's, it's, it's like a, a turning point for U.S. listeners to... Think about Spain. It literally blew people's minds in the United States when they heard it. It's what anyone who, who likes Miles Davis thinks of, thinks of when they think of Spain. That music takes you to Spain, even though you have probably you may not have ever been to Spain. That music takes you right there. Que decía yo, lo que decía yo, que es que este Sketches of Spain es que, es, que, es que fue definitivo, pero definitivo, ¿eh? Porque puedes pensar en otra gente, por ejemplo, yo que sé, Mike Oldfield, pues no, no, no tiene nada que ver, no, es que fue Sketches of Spain. No, fue, es que, o sea, eso es sí. increíble, no, no, sí, sí, sí. el impacto que tuvo ese disco es en la perspectiva de la cultura española. Te, digo, este te digo una cosa y así termino, yo todavía estoy impactado, todavía, ¿eh? o sea, hay días que me levanto por la noche y digo, joder, macho, es que a ver cuándo se me va a pasar el impacto este, pero no, todavía me dura. Bueno, coge la historia. Bueno, resulta que el Sketches of Spain que, que es este disco histórico de que, que, que tienes que poner tal día. Me parece que es de Miles Davis, ¿no? Es de, sí. Sí, sí. Bueno, pues hace en el año 2010 eh, eh, se cumplían los 50 años del Sketches of Spain y había un grupo de productores que habían trabajado con Miles Davis y con Gil Evans que se pusieron de acuerdo para hacer una recelebración de ese Sketches of Spain. Okay. Te voy a poner en, en contexto, okay. señor Fraser. Okay. El Sketches of Spain, lo que hizo el señor Miles Davis y su compañero Gil Evans fue eh, utilizar el trabajo de un etnomúsico ojo americano que se llamaba Alan Lomax que fue por toda España recogiendo grabaciones de campo en los años pues 30, en los años 40 ¿no? y que no tenían nada que hacer o que se fue a España a grabar, a grabar allí existía allí, a, aquí existía la etnomusicología en España ah, los folclores pues ah, los, los dejaban de lado ¿no? o sea, y, lo que llamábamos entonces un hippie ¿no? <risa> más o menos un hippie pero bien pagado y subvencionado probablemente por el gobierno yanqui ¿no? vale. recogió todas estas canciones eh, todo esto llegó a manos de Miles Davis, que estaba buscando inspiración y utilizó alguna de estas fuentes para, para el Sketches of Spain. Y ahora, fast forward 40 años, y a, a principios de, creo que a finales de los 90 o principios de los 2000, el archivo de este etnomusicólogo se hizo público. Y está, ahora mismo puedes acceder a él a, a través de la Smithsonian Foundation y, o Institution, o whatever you call that. Eh, y, y están todas estas canciones. Bueno, pues en el año 2010 yo recibo una llamada out of the blue y me llaman diciendo que estaban buscando una persona eh, o, o gaiteiro o de música gallega eh, para hacer una versión de Pan Piper, que es una de las canciones míticas del Sketches of Spain. Y yo, ah, muy bien, me mandan la información y me explican que al parecer eh, la grabación de campo original de este Pan Piper era una grabación que hizo Alan Lomax, el famoso hippie americano sí, 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 y tal. El de la mochilita. El sí. de la mochilita 
sirita. Y fue por allí grabando a todo el mundo. Wait, wait, it gets better. Alan Lomax hizo esa grabación en el pueblo del que era mi padre. Hombre. Y la oh. grabación es la grabación de un chifre un chifre, no sé que es, es un chifre. pito, o sea, literalmente es una flautita pequeñita. Lo de los afiladores. Primi, lo del, primi, vale, pues en el, el pueblo afilador. de mi padre había, que es el pueblo de los afiladores, de Noguera de Ramuín, en el pueblo de mi padre había dos profesiones famosas, una era la de los afiladores y la otra de los capadores de cerdos. Vaya, pues bueno, pues este era un, un chifre, o sea, un pito de o capador sea, uno, de cerdo. Uno le afilaba el, el cuchillo la navaja y el otro, otro para que no le cortara los huevos sí. a cerdo. ¿Y uno qué es un capador de cerdo, Nick y Lisa? ¿Sabéis lo que es un capador de cerdos? Sí, el que le corta los huevos al cerdo para centrarnos un poquito. Sí. Yeah, it's a, it's a pig castrator. I mean, that, that's the oh music of the pig castrator okay. when they go to a village. They will, like, tell people they are there. And in Galicia, music was a way of telling people how, I mean, the knife sharpeners, they will have a sound. The pig castrators will have another sound. The, the bread the whole, person the whole, will have a... The whole town will hide. <laughs> so, anyway, in 2010, I get this call. They call me and they say, well, this music is from that village. That village is the village of my father and it was like the whole world all of a sudden uh, became like Armariz which is the name of this village and um, that's why you got involved with jazz I got involved with jazz and I got involved with this amazing recording that is called Miles Español and I entered the studio and there you had like Jack Jack de Jonet, Jerry González, Chick Corea, like the best of the best wow. all of them males and, and there I come with my backpipe and, and they were amazed But they really were incredibly amazed about the fact that they never thought about a backpipe doing... I mean, it was crazy. And it kind of gave me permission to say, okay, if these guys really like what I do with this crazy environment, maybe I should try and learn a little bit more about the jazz world. So I created my jazz quartet in New York, which is my other life in this country. And I began touring as a backpiper with jazz musicians, which puts me again in between uh, two very unique and distinctly, distintamente diferentes mundos de la música. That's really incredible. So what are some future projects that you might do Um, I recently became aware of a Nigerian opera singer. You might know of him. I think his name is Babatunde Akinboboye. I probably just said his name wrong. But he's an opera singer who loves hip-hop, so he sings hip-hopera sometimes where he oh, combines wow. it. So what are, what are, are you going to come up with any kind of um, bag, bagpiperaz? Or <laughs> what do you, what's your next big project? Well, that's funny because I... In the last 20 years, I think, I think I've done pretty much everything from heavy metal to hip hop to classical music to contemporary. And, um, Nick was mentioning before my class at UC Santa Barbara, somehow pedagogy and teaching has become like, one of the most meaningful things of my life right now and is is maybe a different kind of performing but uh, if I think about myself in 10 years from now uh, I'm not sure I think about myself as a performer I may think about myself more as a teacher and greater than an actual touring musician because as Guillermo was saying before I mean Life on the road is for a very unique kind of personality and for a timing, right? I mean, two hundred yeah, days, yeah, a year oh, out of, out of your house. Yeah, it's it's a lot, and unless you are really sure that that's the only thing you can do with your life, I think I I can do. I mean, it's just 
pure curiosity to try a different way of understanding life in which the same values I practice as a musician could be used in any other profession. So that's what I'm doing. And that's like my dream uh, project in the future. And then Invisibles, but that Invisibles is like a real project for the next two years. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Christina Pato, for coming to Don't Interrupt Me, Por Favor. Thank you. I don't know how you deal with Guillermo because he's actually interrupting you two all the time. I mean, I'm just saying. Well, that, you know, that, was, that was some of the reason that we thought it might make sense to call the show uh, Don't Interrupt Me. <laughs> if, you, if you had a dream, like a dream class that you could teach, what kind of students would they be? Where would they be? What would they be learning? Well, I mean, not, not people who know anything about music, I, I should say, to I, get it to... There is something about diversity and the lack of diversity in the school. And I'm not talking about race or cultural mm -hmm. diversity, just the different ways people learn mm -hmm. and how to create a more inclusive classroom is something that I've been thinking about all my life. And I, I dream one day that I am able to actually have a classroom full of people that are neurogi neurologically speaking diverse. And that would be like... Like, yes, mission accomplished. Una de las cosas bellas, ¿no? Y una de las cosas que está haciendo Yoyoma ahora mismo, ¿no? Es acercar la música a lugares donde la música nunca llega, ¿no? Eso es bonito, ¿no? Es, eh... es muy bonito. Y ver realmente el impacto de la emoción pura, ¿no? De tocar un instrumento en un lugar donde, te lo, donde no te lo esperas. Claro, y tú estás escuchando un chelo y no sabes que ese chino se llama Yoyoma ni que no. se crió en Francia ni que vive en Boston. Eh, luego te enteras después, pero tú estás en un colegio, tienes ocho años y hay un señor ahí raro tocando el chelo y te toca el corazón como tienen que tocarte los chelos, no porque te han dicho que tiene que tocar. Y es devolver la música a donde realmente pertenece, ¿no? La música nació como un, una manera de expresarse y, y de repente el sistema nos hizo olvidarnos de que la música tiene que estar en las plazas, tiene que estar en los colegios, tiene que estar en todas partes porque nace de una necesidad del ser humano de expresar emociones que no podemos expresar de otra manera. Pues así terminamos. Don't interrupt me, por favor, al ritmo del sonido de nuestros corazones. Tres personas, tres. Adiós, Lisa Button. Adiós, adiós. Hasta la próxima. Adiós, adiós Lisa. Bye, Nick. Muchas gracias, adiós. Cristina. Adiós, Nick. Muchas gracias. Adiós. Gracias. Chao, chao. Adiós, Cristina Pato. Adiós, señor Fese. Mucha suerte en la, en la carretera que todavía te queda. Muchos conciertos que recorrer. Bye, Warren Lawrence. Good to see you. Thank you, Warren. Bye, bye. See you next Sunday, everybody. Adiós. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.